Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, February 16th, 2011. an interesting program lined up for you today. And hopefully you will find it to be uh, timely and uh, educational. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. All right, today we're going to do our light version of Fighting for the Faith. I'm trying to catch up on a few things, and so what we're going to do today is play for you a uh, lecture delivered by Dr. Adam Francisco. Uh, He's formerly of uh, the uh, Fort Wayne Seminary. I think he's uh, taken a call to uh, Concordia, Theolo- uh, Concordia, Irvine. I, I, I think that's the latest. But the na- anyway, if you don't know, uh, Adam Francisco is kind of the uh, Lutheran resident uh, expert on Islam, or at least he's one of them. And uh, not too many of those guys out there. But uh, this is a lecture he presented at UCLA entitled Jesus, God of the Prophets or Prophet of God. And it's uh, dealing with uh, the subject of Islam, and it's, you know, it's interesting to note that in the audience, while he delivered this uh, discussion, this lecture, uh, there were a few Muslims present, and uh, they do take the microphone to ask questions of uh, Dr. Adam Francisco. So without any further ado, here is the lecture entitled, Jesus, God of the Prophets or Prophet of God. Okay, our speaker tonight is Dr. Adam Francisco. He is a professor of historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He received his doctorate from Oxford. He studied under the Protestant Reformation scholar Graham Tomlin, as well as the Islamic scholar Yahya Michaud. And his research was primarily on Martin Luther and Martin Luther's um, interaction with and response to the threat of Islam on Western Europe. Um, during which time he also, uh, Dr. Francisco also learned Quranic Arabic, and he now teaches that. His dissertation was published by Brill Academic Publishers. It is entitled Martin Luther and Islam, a study in 16th century polemics and apologetics. He is asked to lecture around the, com- uh, around the country in various venues, various formats, and he's contributed to probably over 20 articles uh, and essays for publication. 
please join me in welcoming Dr. Francisco. I'm also the father of three children, uh, which is my main claim to fame. Um, Wait, I'm uh, sorry. <laughs> do you, does he need to use this? No. No, okay. Good. Yeah, I've got this, this thing here. Um, yeah, uh, Mr. Pearson mentioned how I've been doing uh, lectures across the country, leaving my kids behind and going around the country doing these lectures. Tonight, I'm not going to do a lecture. I'm going to do more of a talk. And in, not, uh, I guess you might call it an informal talk. And the broad theme that, we've, that uh, Mr. Pearson and I kind of agreed on was Jesus, God of the prophets or, or prophet of God, which is the... I'm convinced, and I think uh, if you look at uh, you know, Muslim theologians and Christian th serious Christian theologians, this is the key issue that separates Christians and Muslims, the key theological. But I'm going to argue tonight as a historian that there's also a historical issue that, um, that is a major point of contention. And if the historical issue, which is more common ground than theology, or it lies in the realm of common ground or a common area of inquiry, I think the theological issues could be uh, resolved a little easier or in a, uh, a little better. Um, first, though, in talking about or in looking at Christian-Muslim relations or dialogues, uh, the postmodern proclivity is to emphasize the common ground, the theological common ground that Islam and Christianity have. I would be, and I think most, most, you know, most Christians and most Muslims would agree, when it comes to our life as civil or citizens of, a, of a, a, a country like the United States, there's a lot of common ground in civil things that we share. You know, a lot of Muslims and Christians largely agree over issues. Um, I don't think these are minor issues. Some people might think it, but uh, issues like abortion and, and uh, various things like ethical issues like that. But where we radically differ and the... Um, while there are those out there who would minimize this, is over theology. If you compare Islamic theo classic Islamic theology and classic Christian theology, historic Christian theology, um, point by point, they radically differ. This doesn't mean we need to be at each other's throats, uh, but it does mean we cannot minimize uh, these differences. One case in point of this minimization is this discussion that's been going on since about 2007. Actually, it's, it's more than just a discussion. It's what you might call a global Islamic Christian dialogue called the Common Word. Uh, it's actually based off a letter that 138 Muslim scholars sent from Jordan in 2000, October of 2007 to leaders of Christian churches everywhere, um, asking them to agree that, we, that the Christian church and uh, is, the Islamic world shares a theological platform in some sense. Um, and in response to that, many Christians, some uh, what I consider respectable Christian theologians, have written back, uh, most uh, notoriously uh, out of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture, saying, yes, we have a whole bunch in common. But if you look at the documents, if you look at the Quran and the Bible and compare the teachings, it is quite different. Again, that doesn't mean we need to fight, obviously, um, but it does mean that uh, we can't just simply minimize our differences and pretend that we both believe the same, that Christians and Muslims believe the same thing, and that we both uh, have the same God, and etc. Um, so before we start looking at the differences and what I might, what I'm going to suggest might be a way to resolve them, um, I'm going to kind of very briefly outline 
know, the different views of Jesus in Islam and Christianity. This is an important topic because I think this is where we radically differ, actually, is the person and work of, who Je- of Jesus. Um, and if you look at, uh, uh, for example, Islam, it's, but all, uh, certainly Christianity, both religions do teach that Jesus was a historical person, he actually walked on earth, taught certain things that his, his teachings have been recorded in books um, and have been passed down to us. But if you compare the different views of Jesus and certainly the, the, what we might call the theology of Jesus or the, you know, the, the, per, the perspective on Jesus that each religion holds, you see a radically different picture, um, which means it's either both are wrong or one's right and the other's wrong. Basic logic tells us that. Now, what is the Islamic picture of Christ, or we might say the Quranic picture of Jesus? Um, there's been, there have been several books uh, written on this. Uh, most recently, there's a scholar out of England uh, known as Louis Fatoui. He's actually an astronomer, but had, for some reason took up uh, theology and uh, history. He's written several books on Jesus and has argued that Jesus is, def- is certainly in terms of who he was historically, a prophet of Allah. Um, and he was certainly, as a prophet of Allah, he was not the son of God, as Christians claim. Um, but in fact, if you go to the Quran, chapter 19, which is probably the most extensive discourse on who Jesus was, you find that right after Jesus is born, he announces to Mary that uh, you know, she's not to fear that she's, you know, she has a child, even though she's not married uh, but uh, she should take comfort in the fact that uh, her her son, who was virgin-born in Islam, um, was a, is a prophet of Allah. Uh, you see also in the Quran, the, the Quran mentions that Jesus, like the, the Bible, that he performed various miracles. He healed the, healed the sick, um, raised the dead. Uh, I, I don't know if that's in the Quran. I know it's in, in some of the traditional literature of Islam. Um, there are all sorts of interesting reports in the Quran regarding Jesus' miracles that you don't find, actually just a few, but you don't find them in the canonical Gospels that you would, in the Bible. For example, the story about Jesus breathing life into an actual clay pigeon. Not in the, the Bible, but you do find it in some of the Gnostic Gospels, these Gospels that were written you know, centuries after Jesus was around, so not written by eyewitnesses at all. Um, so you find stories like that. Um, you find that Jesus is identified, again, as a prophet of law, but a prophet to the people of Israel. The most curious thing um, and the most remarkable thing about uh, the Quran's picture of Jesus is that in Quran chapter 4, it says that Jesus was not crucified, nor was he killed. And this, I think, is the main bone of contention. Um, historical Certainly has theological ramifications, but it's a, it's a major historical bone of contention between Christianity and Islam. I have lots of Muslim friends, um, and I maintain them as friends and will always be friends with them. But in, when it comes to this issue, this is the one thing we just can't get around. And why is it such an issue? I, while Shabir Ali, one of the, the more prominent uh, Muslim apologists out there, says that the Muslim view of Jesus, while it's important, it's a peripheral issue. In Christianity, it's the central issue. Um, and it's not, and certainly it's the, the, the nature of Jesus, the person, the way Christians view the personal work of Christ in a theological way that's important, but also just the historical bit is vital in Christianity. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 
written by the Apostle Paul, uh, probably in the mid-50s A.D., uh, reports that if Christ wasn't, didn't rise from the dead, Christianity's, this is Francisco's paraphrase of the Bible, but Christianity's a scam. Uh, and there are a whole host of uh, Muslim apologists like Ahmadidat, uh, who's he's been dead for a few years now, but he worked primarily out of South Africa. Uh, he used to argue that if Muslims could show that Jesus wasn't crucified, therefore wasn't resurrected, then Christianity would crumble. The, um, and in fact, I completely agree with him. If you, can't, if you can show that Jesus wasn't crucified certain wasn't resurrected, it's gone. You show me the bones of Jesus and you can show, show me that they are actually Jesus' bones. I think every Christian, if they're a classic Orthodox Christian, would have to say, well, yeah, I'd have to leave the faith. It, it, we, our preaching is in vain. Our sins are not forgiven. Um, and ultimately, the truthfulness of Christianity crumbles. The interesting thing about the, the claim in Quran chapter 4, verses 157 and 158, if you're interested in looking them up, is that while it certainly has theological ramifications, it's a historical claim. And I mentioned earlier that this is a history, more so than theology, is a realm that both the Muslim and Christian can, is a, a sphere of inquiry that we can look at. Um, in, it's, it lies in the realm of what we might call common ground. Whereas the theology, I'm, I'm convinced more and more that really Christians and Muslims, when they talk theology, while they might be able to reach some, some sort of consensus if they make compromises, usually it's the Christian who compromises, actually. Um, that's been my experience anyway. Um, when it comes to talking about theology, though, the, the, what, the way things work is the, the Muslim, the Muslim theologian, views Jesus and views their their. their you know, they view the world through a particular worldview or through a lens. We might call it through a, an ideological lens. So they interpret what, uh, what Jesus did, said, and what happened to him through the lens of the Quran. And of course we'd expect that, just like Christians will view the world through the lens of the Bible. Many people will call it the biblical worldview. Um, and that causes, I think, an, a, a problem right from the get-go. Because what you have is when Christians and Muslims get into dialogue, and if it's real spirited dialogue interested in truth, is that you, you, you come to an impasse. Because what you have at work, in many cases, practically speaking, is two ideologies going up against each other. And with the nature of an ideology, although I think classic Christianity, I, I can't speak for, for Islam necessarily, but is... Christianity is not an ideology. The very fact that it can be falsified, it's contingent upon facts, says that this ultimately this isn't an ideology. Whether that's the case for Islam, that's up for debate. But uh, So when it comes to theological discussions, I think we reach an impasse. But the question is, I think the thing that Christians and Muslims need to talk about when it comes to if we're going to have Muslim-Christian dialogue, real Muslim-Christian dialogue regarding theology and religion we need to resolve the issue of jesus and in particular because it lies in history not in theology or abstracted ideology but history we need to look at the issue did jesus die on a cross that's the first thing i want to look at tonight now when it comes to answering that question for from a christian perspective that's just a seems like an, an awkward question because we might say i mean i would say as a historian one who's more of a historian than a theologian, I would say, well, that's 
kind of a silly question because who on earth would suggest he didn't die on a cross? In fact, there are 1.3 plus people who think he didn't die on a cross. Um, But when it comes to answering uh, historical questions like the question, did Jesus die on a cross or was Jesus crucified? That might be another way, an easier way of putting it. Uh, we have to ask ourselves certain methodological questions. How do we answer certain historical qu- claims, in other words? Do we pick texts that were written or com- you know, composed several centuries after the fact? Or, how do, or do we pick uh, texts written by Christian authors? Or what's the best approach? Historians uh, would t- typically, and I don't know a historian who would say otherwise, actually, would say that as far as when it comes to a person, especially a person who lives in the first century, who lived in a, the first century, the sources you ought to go to are, if you've got them, eyewitnesses, eyewitness sources, or sources written by companions of eyewitnesses. If you got artifacts, that would be really great, but unfortunately we don't have those. Um, but also, a strong to strengthen a case, if all you have are eyewitness sources by those who are actually... Uh, partisan to whatever you're looking at, if you've got other sources that are hostile to, say, for example, Christianity, those are remarkable sources to, to, uh, to look into. And, in fact, what you find is that there are numerous, well, I don't know, numerous might be a stretch, but there are several sources uh, that from the first century or perhaps the early second century that all attest to the fact that Jesus was, in fact, put on a Roman cross crucified, dead, and buried. And I would say this isn't a theological claim. This is just simply a historical claim that, that corresponds to every evidence, bit of evidence we have to, relating to what happened to Jesus. So what are some of these evidences? I think the first thing to... Um, I think that's off, isn't it? But it, it's okay. I don't need it. Um, I think you can make it come off. That's, yeah, we'll, we'll pass. <laughs> um, the, the, the first source to resolve the question of whether Jesus was crucified that one can look at is, of course, the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, they all testify to the fact that Jesus was crucified on a cross. This is sort of, I mean, obvious that, I mean, everybody, kinda, everybody should know that this is what the Gospel writers record. Um, they all record it, and they all record it in pretty great detail, actually. Uh, they, um, Matthew... And John, we know, were eyewitnesses. Mark and Luke were companions of eyewitnesses, meaning what they wrote was checked by eyewitnesses themselves. Uh, some people would say, yeah, but aren't there some other Gospels out there? Or weren't there other people from the ancient world that, that uh, taught differently? Um, aren't there some Gnostic Gospels? Isn't there the Gospel of Barnabas out there that teaches something different? There are other Gospels out there that aren't canonical Gospels. None of them, though, are written by eyewitnesses. They might have titles like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Barnabas, uh, but their, their later writings, they were given those titles to give an air of, the air of credibility to them. Uh, the best one out there, the, one, the darling of the Gnostic Gospels that everybody likes to talk about is the Gospel of Thomas. Everybody thought that this was early, you know, 50s maybe. As it turns out, it was probably written late 2nd century at the earliest. Uh, there's another gospel out there called the Gospel of Barnabas that suggests that Jesus was not crucified. And there have been um, various uh, publishing houses, Muslim publishing houses, that have published this gospel as if it's the, the original Injil that's talked about in the Quran, the original gospel. 
Um, what they don't tell you in these contemporary publications is that the English translation they're using is taken from a text from the early 20th century, the first translation of the Gospel of Barnabas, that had a 100-page introduction, scholarly introduction, that said, while this is a, certainly an interesting document, it's beyond a doubt, beyond a reasonable doubt, that this is a 14th or 15th century forgery. Um, that's crystal clear if you look at the actual manuscript evidence. Uh, so the Gospel of Barnabas is not, clearly not, the original in Geo. Um, and it certainly is not in the case, the author, whoever it was, is not in a position to report about what actually happened in the first century, somewhere between 30 and 33 A.D. Um, in addition to those sources, one might object and say, well, of course the canonical Gospels are going to suggest Jesus was crucified, because they were composed after St. Paul wrote and in order for St. Paul's theology of the atonement to work, you've got to have a crucified or a sacrificed Messiah. And so the gospel writers wrote their biographies to, ref or to, to match Paul's theology. That's the claim that uh, Louis Fatui makes and, and others. Uh, the problem is that there's real no, no real evidence that this is in fact what happened. Uh, but still, some might object, of course the gospels are, are, are corrupted perhaps. All right, well, what about the other sources? There are other sources that talk about Jesus written by those who are hostile to Christianity. Uh, probably the most famous one is Josephus, the old Roman Jewish author who wrote several works. Jewish Antiquities is one of his more famous works. Um, he lives, he's born right around the time that Jesus was crucified, dies right around 99, 100 AD. And in Jewish Antiquities, He's simply just writing a history, a very, if you've read it, it's kind of a boring history, but it's, it's certainly valuable today. But he's writing a history of what happened in, in Palestine and other places uh, uh, in the first century and even before then. And Josephus uh, writes, actually one of the early texts or one of the, you know, the earliest texts of Josephus says this. If I can find it here in my notes. Now, there was about this time Jesus a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, or Pontius Pilate, uh, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, and he goes on. But here, here, here you have Josephus referring to the cross, referring to Jesus as the Christ. Why would a Jew say that? A Jew certainly wouldn't say that. And in fact, what seems to have happened is that Josephus, there's a Christian interpolation. Some well-meaning Christian uh, altered a bit of the text of Josephus's original manuscript to, so that it would match uh, you know, uh, Christian uh, presuppositions. And so many people have over the years said, even though this is Josephus is early, um, it just simply, when it comes to Josephus's testimony about Jesus, it's not reliable. And in fact, because it is an interpolation, it's not reliable. Then all of a sudden, a couple decades back, um, a Jewish scholar, Shlomo Pines, uh, actually came across a copy of Josephus written in Arabic that comes from a different manuscript tradition. And here's uh, what, what it records. At that, this time, uh, during the time of Pilate, there was a wise man who was called Jesus. His conduct was good. And he was known to be virtuous. 
and many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, but those who had become his disciples did not abandon his teaching or his discipleship. Uh, they reported that he had appeared to them. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion, and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. Shlomo Pine says that this is probably what Josephus originally, because he's writing as an objective historian, saying this is what they say. He's suggesting, I'm not saying, but this is what the, those who, uh, who have, have followed his teachings say about Jesus. So you've got a, another first century author, not an eyewitness. You know, he's, he was maybe a, a, an infant when Jesus was crucified, but he's writing shortly after the fact, and he's writing as a historian, combing through whatever evidence, and he's in a position. He has, has a, an imperial office, so he's got access to whatever he needs to write a good, uh, objective, we might, today we might say, dispassionate uh, history. So that's one evidence. And again, being a Jew, he's a hostile source. He's not interested at all in propping up Christianity, its theology, or its, its uh, history. Another major source is the, the author Cornelius Tacitus, another first century, early second uh, century author. Um, in fact, there are just four uh, historians that tell us about uh, the, you know, the first century Roman emperors, Tacitus probably being the most important. Much of what he wrote, his Roman annals, has been lost. Uh, but there are about six volumes that, uh, that have come forward that we still have. And here's what he has to say about Jesus and whether he was crucified or not. He says, uh, The Christians got their name from Christ, who was executed by sentence of the procreate, uh, procurator or uh, governor, Pontius Pilate, in the reign of Tiberius. That checked the pernicious superstition for a short time. But the superstition broke out afresh, not only in Judea, where the plague first arose, but in Rome itself, where all the horrible and shameful things in the world collect and find a home. Uh, here you have Tacitus, a Roman who just in this little passage indicates he has no, he, he despises Christians. In fact, most of the Romans did, saying that Jesus was executed. Tacitus, being an imperial uh, historian, of, again, has access to whatever he needs to write on this. And in fact, I'm not totally convinced, but... but uh, See, I think because of uh, another author that I'll mention in just a second, that Tacitus probably based his, his account of what happened to Jesus on what are called the Acts of Pilate, the, you know, we might call the proceedings or the, um, you know, the minutes of, of, of Pilate's uh, governorship. Uh, why do I say that? There is a, another, there's a uh, early 2nd century uh, Christian apologist uh, named Justin Martyr. Who writes, but the word, they pierced my hands and feet from Psalm 22, refer to the nails which were fixed in Jesus' hands and feet on the cross. And after he was crucified, his executioner cast lots for his garments and divided them among themselves. That, things, that these things happened, you may learn from the acts which were recorded under Pontius Pilate. Now there is a extant acts of Pilate available today, which is actually a Christian forgery. So again, another well-meaning Christian put this together probably in the 4th century. Um, that's not what Justin Martyr is referring to. He's referring to something that's actually been lost. I kind of think that Tacitus probably had this at his disposal. There are other instances of acts of various Roman officials that have come down to us, not a whole lot, but some 
Um, so it seems it would be in keeping with tradition that certainly Pilate would keep some some records. Um, now there are other there are other sources from the first century we could cite um, that aren't as clear, but but in light of these, they are very clear. Um, and many of or two of them at least are pagan sources that are pretty hostile to Christianity. So it seems at the if we're approaching history in an evidential way, that is a way that says we're going to look at the evidence and follow it where it leads, regardless of what the conclusion says. You know, push for, at least in a hypothetical way, push aside our, our ideological bias and just simply follow the evidence where, where it leads. What the evidence from the first century world suggests, um, in absence of any sort of counter evidence, is that Christ was in fact crucified on a cross under Pontius Pilate. Um, and I think we could say that the Romans certainly knew what they were doing and that he died. In fact, what you get in the gospel accounts um, is that in, they were going originally, because the Sabbath was approaching, they were originally going to break the, the legs of Jesus. This is what they routinely did to ensure that, the, that death would come quickly. They didn't have to do it with Jesus, but to just because he looked dead, but just to make sure they thrust a spear in his side, which pierced his pericardium. Uh, blood and water came out, uh, ensuring that he was in fact dead. Uh, there are certainly are you, one might object and say, but we know from Josephus that he had three friends who were put on a cross and crucified, and because Josephus had some clout with the Roman officials, he had them taken down, um, and they they in fact survived. But if you if you read on in Josephus, all three of them, two of them quickly die because of you know the flogging and the pers- the crucifixion. Uh, and then the third died a little while later. So the Romans certainly, I mean, they were master executioners. Um, that they would put a, uh, 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 that they um, would have brought Jesus down from the cross without ensuring he was dead, um, Just there's just no reason to think that that would be the case. I'd like to stop here briefly um, to, to address any questions regarding the crucifixion of Jesus and whether it's actually a historical event or not. Um, And then we'll move forward from there. All right. We're going to pause right there. We're going to pay some bills. When we come back, it'll be question and answer time uh, from this lecture regarding Jesus, God of the prophets or prophet of God by Dr. Adam Francisco. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hello. I received a Build-A-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. 
Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is too. Oh, wonderful! Your goddess is coming along beautifully! Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes! My goddess would let everyone go to heaven. Except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, and good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent! Excellent! Now for the final step. You have to name your goddess. Hmm... I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, uh, contrary to the claims of Brian McLaren, Christianity and Islam are not compatible, and uh, Muhammad did not have an encounter with the one true God, at least not until after he died. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button. That allows you to make a one-time contribution or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 460. 
1038. All right, without any further ado, let's listen to the balance of this lecture. We're going to go right into the question and answer period time here uh, with Dr. Adam Francisco on Jesus, uh, God of the prophets or prophet of God. Yes, sir. Well, um, I want to thank you for your presentation. I think your historical approach is, is interesting. And, um, and I agree with you that Muslims and Christians don't have to agree on anything. But I think if you present the Muslim view, it, it I think, resolves the historical question in a very easy way. The orthodox, mainstream, non-controversial Islam, Islamic view about what happened is that as Jesus performed many uh, um, miracles that you say that the Quran mentions, the last of them was that the the, the, the companion who betrayed him, Yehuda al-Iskariyoti, Judaith, I think in English, um, was the God through the image of Jesus on his face. And so when the Romans came in, they thought he was Jesus, that he was tortured, he was crucified, while Jesus was raised to the sky. And so, of course, Christians would not believe that, as well as Muslims wouldn't believe the other version, but it solves the historical problem, because all these historical evidence say that they're the person that looked like Jesus was crucified, and he was crucified. There was someone who crucified, and everyone thought he was Jesus. So this is the Muslim view that resolves this evidence. The point of agreement, however, whether Jesus was resurrected or raised to the sky, both Muslims and Christians agree that Jesus is alive and that he will come down at the end of days. So again, this is the point, whether never dead and resurrected or what, the, this final point is there. But I think what I'm, uh, this Muslim point of view would resolve the historical question. Yeah. And what's the question? Just, or my, do you want me just response about that? No, I'm or just to making that? this yeah. comment because you're saying, well, we need to follow the historical evidence. Well, yeah. I'm saying that there ah, is no dispute gotcha. for Muslims that there is historical evidence that there was someone who looked ah, like Jesus or Jesus okay. being crucified. Okay, now, that's, that is the, that's the, I think you meant the classic or the orthodox view of what happened, that uh, the night when the Last Supper, what Christians would call the Last Supper, Jesus looked around and asked who would take his place on the cross, and Judas raised his hand, maybe he raised his hand, um, and volunteered. And uh, the Quran, in, it's 4.157, says that, it says that uh, those who arrest, or the, that who went, whoever went up to the cross, it appeared like it was Jesus. And so some have posited that uh, Judas's face was transformed a bit. Others have suggested Simon the Cyrene. Um, uh, and this actually isn't in the, the substitution or the change is mentioned, but not the person. That's all from his, you know, the you know, commentaries, tafsir. But um, the, the Quran does talk about Jesus ascending. And so the, the, the theory or the position is that when uh, Judas volunteered, the, the roof opened and Jesus is taken up into heaven. Um, Others, you know, this is, I know this is a heretical sect in Islam, but the Ahmadiyya movement says that, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but they've got a book out called Jesus in India. And they say what happened is Jesus went up to a cross, but he didn't die. He, he swooned, perhaps. Uh, it looked like he was dead, but when he was put in the grave or the tomb, he revived himself. And then he left the tomb and went eastward towards India looking for the lost tribes of, of Israel. Uh, most, I mean, I, I'd probably say 99% of the Muslim world doesn't believe that. Um, the problem with the substitution theory is that that's something that's from a 7th century text. Now, I know a Muslim would say, well, this is the word of Allah. Uh, but that's the, that's the, the thing. Uh, you, one has to, uh, his, looking at historical phenomena, uh, we do our best. While it's impossible to get behind our presuppositions or biases, when it comes to our... We want to minimize our 
biases and pr- as much as possible push aside our theology or um, and if there are presuppositions, they're presuppositions of method. And the question then is, was he crucified? For the historian is, who's the best person to report on this accurately? Somebody from the 7th century or a whole slew of 1st century authors? And that, that's the, it's only a historical argument. I, I, I do agree that this, in a way, can be resolved, but I don't think it's... Um, it does a lot of theological damage to Christianity. In fact, it completely undermines Christianity. Um, so um, in terms of just, all, all I want to leave you with is if we're going to talk about a first century figure, let's, t- let's give primary place to eyewitnesses and others. But, um, but of course, we'll always, we'll eternally disagree perhaps on, not, maybe not eternally, but, uh, um, but, but th- thank you for bringing that up. I should have mentioned that is the Muslim view of uh, what happened with regard to the crucifixion, that he was, substi- it was, there was some sort of substitution. There's a great, if I can, I'm notorious for mentioning books, but Todd Lawson has written a great book on this, and he's actually very sympathetic to the Muslim viewpoint, just simply called uh, Christ and the Crucifixion, where he traces the history of how Muslims have viewed uh, whether Jesus was crucified or not, and actually finds that the first mention of it is in uh, John of Damascus, 750 A.D. or about then. Uh, and, but then you have this long exegetical tradition positing various substitution theories. Um, but there were some, uh, the, the Brethren of Righteousness, a small kind of Muslim sect, kind of rationalist sect, did posit that he was crucified, in fact. And I would say it's because that's, that's of course I'd say that because I'm a Christian, but uh, that's what uh, uh, the, the historical sources say. Um, so if I, I actually have a follow-up to that. Yeah. Are there, prior to 7th century, are there sources? Are there? I mean, so I guess, does, is well, anyone the, saying this prior to the composition uh, of the Quran? Another good question. Um, the, the, you know, the Quran, of course, and there are man, there's manuscript evidence. While there are some who say that the Quran's, you know, the, the, more of the revisionists would say it's a later compilation. I'm, I used to kind of flirt with that, but now with, in light of the manuscripts found in Yemen, in the 19, late 70s, that date to the mid-7th century, it's, we got, there's a long uh, manuscript tradition. Um, uh, the nature of it is kind of interesting. So the Quran, 7th century text mentions it, so that's before John of Damascus. There is a mention in Tertullian, a church father, second, third, early 3rd century church father, uh, who mentions a man named Basilides from the... Late first cent, uh, late early second century, who taught that Jesus wasn't crucified, but he says that um, he's not saying what the, the Islamic tradition say, says. He's saying that Jesus himself wasn't really a physical person. He was kind of a, a ghost. He seemed like a person, but he was more of a ghost. Um, and then there's a something I recently saw a uh, a second century text that actually does posit he was not crucified. In fact, somebody was crucified in his place, um, and Jesus survived it and laughed at how the Christians were teaching that he was crucified. But here you have Jesus living, on, uh, remaining on earth. So that that's not doesn't square with the Islamic tradition either. But it, and again, it's a, a second century text. Not you know, it's part of the Gnostic tradition, so it's not reliable at all as a historical work. I don't know what the reference is, but on page 751 of my Quran, it says, uh, if anyone has the English, I don't know what the English is called, it's the, it's the green one that 
you oh, there's can, just anyway, so many of them. Um, it says it has Jesus speaking. It's it's the Quran and it's yeah. recording Jesus saying, uh, "On the day I was born, yeah. and on the day I die, and yeah. on the day I will rise again." Yeah, Quran so, nineteen thirty three is the is the, so the verse. Um, what like that? That seems to me like obviously Jesus dies and rises. So I don't understand yeah, it, why anyone would deny that. But yeah, it's. Anyway. Um, uh, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, or you can you, you can correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, the way that's usually reconciled, it is true. 1933. It's it's at least in the life of Jesus from a Quranic from the Quranic account. It's very early on. He's young. Um, it's just a few verses after he tells Mary, the Virgin Mary, that he's the a prophet of Allah. Um, uh, then Jesus says, "Bless, blessed, what am I, or was I, in the day I was born? Blessed." It, Am I on the day I die and the day I rise? The way that's usually resolved, and I do have a, um, I do, there is one man out there at least who said that that verse compared to the Quran 4:57 that rejects the crucifixion led, led to him to doubt, and now he's, he's left Islam. Um, but uh, the way that's usually reconciled is that the reference to his death and resurrection is way into the, after Jesus returns at the last day, uh, which is, Probably the classic verse on is that Quran is Quran five one sixteen and one seventeen when uh, the, the the picture is that all the dead are raised Jesus the the Messiah returns um, and Allah it doesn't point to him but says to uh, Jesus um, did you tell these people the Christians to take you and your mother Mary as God and Jesus said I would have never told them that and then. After that, after the day of judgment, he'll die. After I think the hadith or the tradition is that he'll go around and destroy crucifixes and kill all the swine or pigs on earth, and then then he'll die and then he'll be raised up like every other human being. Because in Islam, Jesus is is a prophet, sinless prophet, but but just a human being. Yeah, um, that's the way it's resolved. So, um, although it does seem to suggest uh, there's some tension, I think. Yes, sir. Thank you. It's a very interesting lecture. Uh, my, I'm a Muslim. My name is Ahmed. And the verse uh, Mark just mentioned is talking in the present tense, not in the past tense. Yeah. I have it here with me. It's talking on the day I'm born, on the day... I, as you just yourself translated correctly, but what he's referring as if he already died. So there is no contradiction. And yeah. about the guy you mentioned who left... Uh, yeah. It's very clear for anyone who understands the meaning yeah. that is talking about on the day I'm going to die. So it is talking peace on me on the day of my birth, peace on me on the day I will die, yeah. or I will die, yeah. and on the day of my resurrection. Yeah. So yeah. it's not talking that he died and this is an evidence that he was crucified or something. So yeah. I, I just it's point, in a few. It, yeah. It's either. I mean, we we might say it's going to be soon because he's right. He's speaking as a what, but, uh, what Muslim we believe would say is that in the, the apocalypse, uh, the just before the day of judgment, everyone will die, including him. Yeah. He, we believe he's alive in the heaven. Yeah. But yeah. on the day of judgment, everyone will die, including him, including angels, and the angel of death himself. So only God would remain. And then there will be the, the resurrection for everyone, yeah. including yeah. him. Yeah. So that was not my main question. Okay. just came to So my question is, you mentioned several times about scholars, and you described them as hostile. It's not working. It's in the right yeah. Hostile to Christianity. Is it? Ah, okay. Okay, so uh, describing some scholars being hostile to Christianity, I'm talking, uh, you are a professor and mo some people here are researchers. 
from scientific point of view, how can you describe people whom you don't like their argument as being hostile to Christianity? I mean, oh. the problem here in this audience is that most of them are very devout Christians, and you are a professor and graduate from Oxford. So mixing so much uh, science and research with belief, I mean, I am a very devout Muslim as well, but I wouldn't try to use science to prove my belief because I am, by definition, biased. So as you seem to be a very devout Christian, as yourself seem to be, so how come you are trying to do or to appear as scientific? And my evidence for this, you are describing whoever you didn't like as hostile to Christianity. You are saying about gospels that appeared a little bit later than the ones that you like that this was later on, say, it is very suspicious. Yeah. You describe people who think that Jesus was not resurrected as silly people saying so. You said there are 1.3 billion people think so. Think you that said, he wasn't crucified. Yeah. And from a yeah. Christian perspective, that just, we, it's, it doesn't it's make the reverse, sense. In fact, yeah. it's yeah. 1.3 yeah. billion people who or believe plus, so. Yeah. And all the Chinese, Indians, billions and billions of other people don't believe even yeah. anything yeah. about him. Yeah. So yeah. I just want to get more scientific yeah. about this. Okay, that's, that's yeah, it. yeah. No, that's a, that's a good question. Um, with regard, I didn't mean to suggest that you're silly. I was just saying for, for a Christian, it seems. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, with regard to the hostile sort, I'm describing Josephus, Tacitus, and these Roman authors, Jewish or you know, Stoic or pagan, however you want to call them, as hostile, because they, in fact, are hostile to Christianity. They are not historic source. Don't quote them anyway. I mean, they are either trustable scientific source, oh. or they are hostile, they don't mention them at all. Oh, maybe we mean something different by hostile. Um, I mean, these are not Christians. They're they're good sources. They're first, you know, we would use we use Tacitus to learn about, you know, the the first century Roman world, um, and but he's he's not writing from a partisan perspective. So he's not interesting interesting in propping up, you know, what maybe you might say is Saint Paul's theology. Um, he's simply recording what he sees as, as history. That's what I mean by hostile. He's, ho- he's, not a, he's not partisan. You'd, of course, expect a Christian to say this, that, and the other thing. You wouldn't expect somebody who wants to discredit Christianity to say things that comport with Christian views. That, that's what I mean by that. Um, and, and as far as trying to, you, I think you said, um, giving off the appearances of, of, of being scientific, um, it's true I'm a, I guess it might depend on who you ask, whether how devout I am or not. But uh, I think I'm pretty devout. Uh, um, I don't pray five times a day. <laughs> um, I should, but uh, not in the way you would, but I should, but admit more, in fact. But uh, um, why, why, do I, why do I try to approach this sort of in a historical way? The, the thing with Christianity, and I would say also with Islam, both of our religions are historical religions. It's not just that they... You know, I don't. I don't know how you. It's not that they've developed historically, but there's. You know, they the way it's art, Christianity has been articulated, and also Islam. It's bound in many ways or informed by the historical context. Um, but more importantly, both Christianity and Islam both purport to be religions that are are derived or based from a historical revelation, an actual revelation of God in history. Um, the uh, in in uh, Christianity, 
you know, the, 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 the focal point of God's revelation is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Whereas in Islam, I would say the, the, the parallel in Islam is, is the, the Quran, where Jesus is the incarnate God for us. The Quran is the inscripturated uh, word of God for, for, um, for Muslims. So that's why I try to approach it factually. Because I think that's, if we do have historically, if we do have religions that are allegedly historically revealed, they're testable in some way. It's not easy, certainly. Um, but they are, at least in principle, verifiable. You know, the old, I mean, you're obviously very educated. Uh, the old analytic philosophers, though this isn't fashionable in the postmodern era anymore, uh, but they used to say that if you've got a certain claim about the real world that purports to correspond to the real world, if it's not in principle verifiable or probably more importantly, falsifiable, it's a meaningless claim. Because then all you're doing is talking abstract ideology at best, if not uh, nonsense. Like the claim, there's a God that, you know, Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, you're familiar with Richard Dawkins probably, the, 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 um, the flying spaghetti monster God. You know, he exists, he exists, and he, he resides about 10 miles further than our best uh, telescope. And because he's some sort of, he's divine, he knows when we're going to create a, or develop an even better telescope, so he moves even 10 miles further, that would be meaningless, a meaningless claim. Uh, it may be meaningful to the individual in a subjective way, but an, as an objective claim of truth, it's, it's not, not uh, meaningful. This is the strength of Islam and Christianity, though, is that we make certain claims that such and such is the case doesn't mean that everything's verifiable, but certain aspects of our theology or our religion is verifiable. That's why I take, I approach it to, in a historical and, um, um, yeah, historical kind of scientific way. Though, yeah, I think that's, you know, we should talk afterwards. I'd like to talk. I've, um, I've never been to UCLA before. I kind of wish I would have studied here uh, after having spent the day on the beach and eating sushi and, um, so, uh, yeah, let's, we've got, oh, oh I, okay. I, just quick follow-up, yeah, it's just going to be yes or no. So um, this, regardless of what your religious persuasion is, is it, the, is it considered a reliable historical method to go by the earliest sources and those sources that, um, yeah. you know, had contact with the person and event in question? Oh, ab- I mean, as a historian, that's my main training as a, as a historian. That doesn't guarantee its authenticity necessarily. So you're not saying that because you're a Christian. No, 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 no. I'm that. saying as a, as a historian, as a you know, my specialty is 16th century, but as a somebody trained in historiography, the writing of what happened in the past—that's the the methodological assumption. And I can't think of a better way of doing it. Of all historians, yeah. Well, there are there are those who have ideological axes to grind, certainly. But but the I'd say 90% of historians, minus as you can detect, I'm not a big fan of postmodernism. They're you know they do whatever they want. Um, uh, I think we're bound, historians are bound to the sources. Uh, when, we make, when you make historical claims, you're, you're, you're st- saying something that is, you're, when you say something that you say, such and such is the case about this particular person or whatever, you're saying that, that, what you, what, that statement or assertion or proposition you made corresponds to, actually, to what actually happened. To know what actually happened, you've got to have sources unless you just want to make stuff up, which is what a lot of people do, but uh, that's not legitimate history, at least in... Actually, it's not just my view. It's the view of the, the, not just the Western world, but most, most of the world. 
I just wanted to ask one question in regards to uh, sources and the way that they're being used. Now, I understand that you're using um, hostile sources as sort of independent verification in order to rule out some sort of confederacy. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I was trying to write down exactly what sources you were using, and the only one that I got that was actually referring to something other than an understanding that there had been a Jesus, I was actually referring to some kind of um, uh, actual textual account from the time, was uh, that of Tacitus, who you, you said was looking at the Acts of Pilate. Um, which maybe, have, maybe. I'm not, I'm not... Right, which have, which have never been found. Yeah. So I'm wondering if that, that doesn't sort of present a, a problem in terms of having sort of uh, a criterion for independent verification. I, I'm, I don't know if I followed. Well, okay, if... Um, where, uh, where many of the, the hostile sources were referring to the Christians believe this, um, Tacitus, you said, was referring to, and this happened from an account that may have existed, though it has not been found. Oh. Um, and so I'm wondering, as far as independent verification goes, uh, if that it actually stands up. Okay. Tell me if I'm addressing this question, because I, I, I think I get it. But uh, um, Tacitus, I don't know if he used the acts of... I, you know, that would be a, a good place for him to start, but he could have used any number of sources. He could have gone... And, in, and interviewed people, perhaps, or based it on um, some other some other imperial source. We we don't know, but I have a hunch because there is mention in Justin Martyr, and I think elsewhere that there that the acts of Pilate were actually brought you know, were written down and presumably stored in Rome, maybe. Um, and Justin Martyr is writing around 150 A.D., so that assumes that they were existing at the same time that Tacitus is writing. I only suggested that as that it could have been he's using the Acts of Pilate. Not necessarily. He was using some sources, though. Um, now, now, Louis Fatui actually will say that Tacitus, Josephus, um, uh, Pliny the Younger, and other Roman sources that talk about early Christianity or, or Christ were actually basing all their, their, their works off of Christian sources. So it's actually... Um, it's it's biased, even though it looks like it's not biased because they're they're hostile uh, witnesses. Um, they are biased because they're using Christian sources. But again, there's you know where there's not a whole, there's no evidence for that. Um, and uh, the way they write, especially Tacitus and also Pliny the the younger, who's very hostile, um, is that they would have done anything they could to to sort of expose this thing as just a fraud. Or a, you know some sort of grand conspiracy or something. So, um, and again, my only claim is that uh, I'm not even making a theological claim. My claim is just that if we're going to answer the question if Jesus was crucified on a cross, um, we've got to go with we've we've got to base our conclusions on the best sources, um, best historical sources, as do, working as a historian. Um, now I know that with, when it comes to faith, you know, when faith gets involved in things, it messes everything up. That's why I'd rather do it just as a historian. So. Just as an observation, I think that um, this this idea of that G- Judas took Jesus' place is outside of the realm of history. It's it, there's no way to verify it or falsify it. So because of that, it's it's not helpful. It's it's just not helpful to any kind of histor- historical inquiry just because yeah. it's not falsifiable. Yeah. yeah. 
You can say it, but yeah. there's no. Yeah. Again, this is, I'm, I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but uh, you know, this would be sort of a Trump uh, ideology trumping fact, you know, to posit something like that. Um, and anybody can do that. Um, so, okay. Now, next question. I, I, can we move on? Yeah. Is that cool? We have about, well, I don't know how long we're all staying here, but we, we're kind of running short on time. But let me ask the question, why was Jesus crucified? Um, the quick and short answer, to, in the interest of time, is because he was guilty of blasphemy. Um, it's recorded, of course, in the Gospels, the Gospel of John especially. You, know, you find several cases where Jesus makes some startling claims when he says, before Abraham was, I am. There are all sorts of what, what theologians call I am sayings, where Jesus is associating himself with, with God the Father. John 10, 30 or 31, I think uh, the ESV actually puts it at 30. I always memorize 31. Um, Jesus says that I and the Father are one. And, you know, some might say, well, maybe he's just saying, I and the Father are one in, in mission, you know, one in, you know, one in spirit, perhaps, or, you know, we have the same sort of goals and agenda, you know, being, the, being a prophet, uh, he's on, on board with, with God's agenda, perhaps. But then when you, you continue reading, just two verses later, um, the, the, uh, Jesus is, you know, the question is asked, why, why um, after Jesus says that, the Jews pick up stones to stone him. And the question is asked, well, why are you picking up stones? Is it because of the good works I do? And they, what do they say? They say, no, because you're associating yourself with God. That's, you find that that's throughout all the Gospels. Jesus associating himself with, with, with uh, God uh, and, and claiming to be in the embodiment or the incarnation of God. I would go so far as to say that that's pretty darn clear. That's probably not a good word to say. Uh, a pretty, pretty crystal clear. Um, that uh, in, in the Gospels. But also you find this in, there are some external sources. Uh, Pliny the Younger um, does mention that the early Christians sang hymns to, to Christ as if he was God. That's a little later. We do have, and I just learned of this a little while ago, although it's been around for some time, there's actually the arrest warrant for Jesus is available in the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud. And it says that uh, it identifies um, Jesus, it refers to him as Yahshua or Yeshua uh, Hanotri, Jesus the Nazareth. So his name actually wasn't Jesus, it was actually Joshua, but that's, that's the English trans- translation of, of the Greek. But it says he is, he is to be stoned uh, for blasphemy and leading Israel into apostasy. And this, this is the arrest warrant before he's actually put on a cross. Um, pretty this is a this you know this is jewish attestation that jesus is associating himself with god um thinking through this as a historian that's pretty clear that jesus claimed to be as god i know there are there are of course those who claim that these these jesus's claims actually aren't uh that they can be resolved or they can be interpreted differently but if you, if you read the text in greek it's pretty crystal clear I mean, in fact, that's the only explanation for why Jesus was crucified, that he was, he was associating himself with God. Now, um, while claiming to be God, um, uh, claiming to be God is one thing, but actually demonstrating it is something entirely different. Um, I don't know. I'm told that lots of people think that they're God in California. I don't know. Um, uh, I actually did live, uh, live out here for a while, and I lived in Hawaii for a while, and I did meet lots of people who were a little 
often did seem to think that they might have been God. And I meet lots of people today who in some way think that they really, I mean, they live as if they're, they're God themselves. But um, Jesus doesn't just claim to be God. Uh, and you find in the Gospels that he also gives, he, he suggests that he's going to give definitive proof that he was God. For, first of all, he associates himself with, as he puts it on the road to Emmaus, after his, his resurrection in Luke, I believe it's chapter 24, two guys, Cleopas being one, we don't know the name of the other, are walking towards Emmaus, and somebody comes up alongside of them. They don't recognize who it is, which is sort of odd, but uh, in any case, that's what's recorded, and uh, begins talking with them, asking them what they're talking about, and Jesus, or this person who comes up alongside of them, says, well, don't you know the, the events that happened in the past couple of days? And then uh, their eyes eventually, they're eventually become aware that it's Jesus who is walking with them, actually eating with them, and then uh, Jesus begins to expound or explains that um, uh, that this is all everything that had just happened in Jerusalem had been talked about by, as he puts it, Moses and the prophets, um, ass- claiming that he's the fulfillment of the of the old the old messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. Um, even still, that's just a claim. Did did Jesus do anything that might? Um, indicate that he was God. Well, yeah, he did lots of miracles and and things like that, but uh, there's one thing in particular that most Christian apologists, or especially historical apologists, would point their finger at to to base their claim that Jesus was, in fact, the embodiment or the the incarnation of God, and that is the resurrection. You find in a couple places in the Gospels, three, that Jesus is approached by people who say, on what basis do you make these radical claims that, you're, that you have some sort of divine authority? And Jesus responds, he responds two different ways. Uh, the one I, I like is found in John 2, uh, where he says, where Jesus seems to be, and you find this throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus seems to be suggesting that while in previous days the temple was where you would find uh, a God dwelling, that he was the one to, as Colossians puts it, he, would be the, he was the one who, in whom the fullness of the deity dwells. And you, you see that Jesus says to those people who question um, the basis for his, his various divine claims, he says, uh, tear down, or, you will give, be given no sign, no evidence, except for, uh, except for this. If you tear down this temple, referring to his body, or referring to him, I'll, I'll, be, I'll rebuild it again in three days. This is a, as the Gospel of John puts it, a reference to his subsequent resurrection, which most people didn't understand. It, it certainly acknowledges early on in, in John 2. But uh, afterwards, everybody, you know, the Christians, or those who were converted by this, by this event, um, recognized that that's what he was, in fact, talking about. Now, can, you know, can the resurrection be um, argued for from a historical perspective is one very interesting question that's been raised for some time since at least the time of the philosopher David Hume. Um, I would say that one thing that we can be certain of as his, approaching this as a, as a historian, approaching the life of Jesus as a historian, is that while nobody was there videotaping what happened Easter morning, we can know as historians that the tomb was empty. Um, the Gospels record this, and it's the only way to explain why so many people became Christians. The tomb was certainly empty. Um, in fact, Matthew records that in order to try to quiet um, uh, what they 
they anticipated the, the Christians would, make, would claim about this empty tomb. The Jews, Matthew records, paid off the guards of the tomb to, to circulate the, the account that the disciples had sold, stolen his body. And in fact, you find that in the, the second and early third century as well, that that story is being, or that account is being circulated. Um, but what that s- suggests is that they are acknowledging the tomb was in fact empty. So you have Christians saying the tomb is empty, and you have Jews and also some Romans saying that the tomb is empty. Um, now the question, this is the big historical question. Why was it empty? Now, if we're going to answer a historical claim, again, I'm forcing it into the historical realm rather than theological realm uh, to try to shift it into some sort of neutral territory. Um, as far as the evidence suggests, the evidence that we have, and in fact all the evidence suggests that, that he was, in fact, walking around for 40 days after his resurrection. The eyewitnesses record it. Um, Paul stakes the truthfulness of Christianity on this. Um, and it, as many late 1st, early 2nd century writers say, that the thing that caused the growth of Christianity wasn't that it was philosophically rigorous or theologically completely coherent, but rather, they were convinced that this was true, as Clement, uh, the, the church father, wrote in the very early 2nd century, if not the late 1st century, because they, the thing that verified this was that he did, in fact, rise from the dead and appeared to them for a course of 40 days. As Luke puts it in the book of Acts, he provided many infallible proofs demonstrating that he, in fact, did rise from the dead. We have several account, interesting accounts about, or uh, um, several interesting post-resurrection accounts. My favorite is, and I'll just end with this in the interest of time, is at the end of the Gospel of Luke, uh, you have, or ac- actually it's John, chapter 20, you have the famous Thomas, not the author of the Gospel of Thomas, but uh, the uh, Didymus, or Thomas uh, the twin, I believe he was, he was a twin. Uh, he um, is a some people call him Doubting Thomas. I'm not, I would rather call him Empiricist Thomas. Um, he says, I'm not going to believe this account, especially, he says, especially because it's the women who are the first witnesses to the empty tomb. I'm not going to believe them. He's a good Jew. Um, not, I'm not making a swipe at Judaism, but uh, that's, those are the first witnesses. All, the Gospels record that these are the first witnesses of the empty tomb and the resurrection. Uh, he's not convinced of it. A woman's testimony in first century Palestine wasn't worth anything. Um, and so he says, I won't believe it unless I'm able to put my hand in the holes in his, maybe his wrist or his hands and thrust my hand into his side. In fact, what you read is Jesus actually comes among the disciples and Thomas does this and then responds famously, I think, um, you know, acknowledging that he does in fact believe he is uh, both the Christ and the Son of God and says, my Lord and my God. Now, if Jesus... We would expect Jesus to acknowledge us as if he was, in fact, the Lord and God. Um, but if he wasn't Lord or God, and he didn't correct Thomas as a good Jew, Jesus being a Jew, um, he's guilty of allowing this blasphemy to, to remain. Um, the way C.S. Lewis would put it is Jesus either is Lord, he's a lunatic, or he's a liar. Those are the three options that you got when it comes to Jesus. If, and I would certainly assert as a historian, if we're to take the four Gospels as eyewitness or testimony based on, based on eyewitness testimony, um, those are the only conclusions you can draw. And I think the evidence is, 
unequivocally points in the direction that he in fact was, as John says in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, I think I'll stop here and open for a Q&A. Um, I actually have a question first, which kind of overlaps both your little segments. Um, the first segment, you had mentioned how um, Paul wrote such and such, and we have these four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but some will say they're corrupted, and that is why you went to these other sources. Um, and then in this last segment, you referred to what these um, accounts say, but if they are corrupted, why are you appealing to them? So I, I guess my question is, if the Muslim claim is, is, or if many Muslims will claim that your Gospels and Paul's letters are wrong or have errors or have been corrupted, what do you say in response to that? Well, first, I would say, what do you mean by corrupted? There is a, there's, the, the Muslim tradition is not unanimous on what it means that the, the, the Torah and the Gospel and the, the Psalms are corrupted. Some, I mean, the popular claim is that the one that I encounter the most is that the actual text itself has been corrupted. And so uh, not only were there copyist errors in the manuscript tradition, but actual theological innovations were introduced. Uh, and a, a famous example is John fourteen sixteen, when Jesus uh, is telling the disciples that uh, they're not to worry because when he leaves, he's going to send the paraclete, or the, most people would say that that's the Holy Spirit. I would say that, that he's referring to the Holy Spirit. He's going to send the paraclete. He's going to petition the Father to send the paraclete. You know, the Son's going to petition the, petition the Father to send the Holy Spirit. And um, uh, I think it was Ahmadidat who pushes this. He says that uh, actually in the original manuscript, paracleton, which is the Greek, actually said was paracleton. And it's just a one letter, one consonant, or actually a vowel change. And he says, if it was, because it was paracliton, if you translated that out of Greek and into Arabic, what you get, would get would be Ahmed. And you find in Quran 61.6, you have uh, the Quranic Jesus saying, Behold, I give you good tidings of a prophet who will come after me named Ahmed. Not, not you, but uh, I know it's your name, but uh, it's referring to, it's just another name for Muhammad. Um, and now, that seems like a pretty daunting or pretty uh, uh, serious accusation. And a lot of, I have read some responses to that. A lot of them were kind of uh, sad. A lot of Christians said, oh, maybe that is the case. Nobody thought to ask the question, well, is there any evidence from any manuscript that it was paracletant? There is none. So the claim that the Gospels, let's just take the Gospels now, uh, are corrupt. First of all, we need to know what, to, what we mean by corruption. Um, there are certainly, um, and we've, Christians have historically, at least since the 17th century, since you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, scholars were tr tried to put together a critical edition of, of the, the Bible, uh, there, is, there certainly are, in the manuscript tradition behind the Bible, copious errors. You find John is sometimes spelled with one N, or sometimes with two uh, sometimes there's a thing in, in, in Greek uh, called the movable new, whereas when you come to the end, and Arabic kind of has this, when you come to the end of a word, if it ends in a consonant, I mean a vowel, and then the next word begins in a vowel, you have to add a, an N, or new, to, break, to help with the reading. Sometimes the copyist didn't, to, didn't record this. Sometimes you have the word order is reversed. In the Greek language, like Latin, doesn't matter. It's the same meaning regardless of how, what, what uh, order the words take. Sometimes you have in, in some of the early manuscripts 
where in the, in the original text you have a pronoun, the actual proper name is put in there. Those are from based on lectionaries, where to give context to the actual reading, they, they gave the name. So you're not just starting off with a he and you have no idea who you're talking about. Um, and amongst almost 6,000 Greek manuscripts, uh, many of them, a lot of them 2nd century, a lot of 4th century, some fragments, some would even date, although these are, this is certainly controversial to the late 1st century. Um, one little change amongst 6,000 manuscripts adds up to quite a lot. So you get people like Bart Ehrman who will say that there are between 200 and 400,000 uh, errors or, or, or variants in, in the manuscripts. Well, big deal. As a historical document, that, why wouldn't there be that? Um, and uh, you'd expect that. Uh, it, it, oftentimes, I think um, there's this understanding which that uh, that there's, that Christians have this view that the the after the the writers wrote that their the copying was preserved. We, there's no no Christian has ever actually claimed that the as people copied that this has been perfectly preserved. You do get that motif in Islam that the Quran has been perfectly preserved even as people copied it. They didn't. There was no copious errors. There is in the Greek manuscript tradition, but it's none of them are of any consequence, theological or historical. They're very minor. There are some issues. There's two, two famous issues that Christians have always been pretty forthright about. One is the ending of the Gospel of Mark. Um, I think it's, start, it's the last chapter starting at verse 9 to, I think it goes to 16. Um, it's a str- kind of a strange ending. And in, uh, even in English translations, there's always been a footnote or brackets given there saying this isn't in the earliest manuscripts. And it doesn't affect anything anyway in terms of teaching or history, uh, the historicity of the faith. So, you know, it's not a big deal for us. Um, so that, that it's corrupt, I don't No, it's not. As a historical document, no, it's not. I'm looking at them as historical. You could get into the theological issues, but, I, you know, that's not my concern as thinking about what happened in history. Is, is this a reliable historical document? And they ring true. They, they, are, they prove to be historical documents. Uh, probably the best work on this to counteract the hyperbolic claims of Bart Ehrman, which have been cr- criticized throughout the scholarly world, actually. And a lot of people have called him on the carpet saying, you're just popularizing this, this, this uh, view of the Bible as, as, um, as corrupt to make money. In fact, he's made a ton of money doing it. Um, even though scholars have proved that he's drawn huge inferences, made huge logical leaps to his conclusions. Um, uh, the best work out there is Richard Baucom's Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, if you've got time to read a seven, 800-page book. But uh, his, he says that contemporary research, and a movie is coming out this year called The Jesus Accounts, that makes the same claim that these are, these are in fact, eyewitness accounts. Um, yeah. Yes, sir. You mentioned that the resurrection of Jesus, yeah. uh, if, if I suppose that it has happened historically with the scientific evidence from historic sources, is an evidence for him being a god. Is this that's what I understood? Is this what you meant? That his resurrection um, is evidence that he was God yeah. or divine in I some mean, way? If we or... could prove it historically, is yeah. this yeah. an evidence for him being God? That's yes. what I understood mm-hmm. you want to say, right? Yeah, it's, it's, verif- it's validation of his claims to be divine. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. So my question is, before answering this point, we should put a definition for God. So it's simple, straightforward question. Yeah. What should be the definition of God to say that someone resurrected himself or came back to life after mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Is there an enough evidence that he was God? Yeah. Do you have a definition what God is? I, um, mean, I would say Jesus. Uh, the, the point I want to say, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure of this, but as scientific thing, we are yeah, trying yeah. to get into university well, level lecture, yeah. not a, a chapel lecture. So uh-huh. we should put oh, definition for something before putting evidence for it. So, so we want to define who God is before inquiry. That, that runs into The problems. point I'm trying to say, like, if someone here now died and came back to life, oh. then, then we will say he is God. I mean, this would be enough oh, I got definition I, of I him being a God, people. even if we saw it. I, I know the history from my sources about someone who came back to life after this, at the Moses' time and before yeah. him. And so Did they on. claim to be God, though, any of those people? Oh, I'm talking about historic evidence uh-huh. for me i am saying he's not god but you said being able to resurrect himself and mark said this many times before is an evidence that he's god so give me your definition of god so that i make it convinced um, you you want me to give you a creedal definition the creator omnipotent omniscient um omnibenevolent i could give you a, a whole list it's a classic theistic definition of god but i would be very wary of and the early christian church in fact was very wary of starting with a definition of who god was in a philosophical abstract way uh, we know who god is by who by how by what he tells us about himself the the thing with the resurrection is yeah there are have been other resurrections in history i'm convinced of that i don't know if anything's happened recently i've Never heard any claims, and not. And if I did, I wouldn't rule it out. But the the interesting thing with Jesus is, is he actually claims to be God. Um, so it, the resurrection is validation of his claims. Are you asking why, if Jesus rose from the dead, so many people didn't believe? Yeah, it's kind of odd because he's a guy who apparently raised other people when he was alive, yeah. and he did miracle. I mean, yeah. the, quite a few people did, in fact, believe. Um, uh, in fact, I would dare say that the last place Christianity should have been successful is Jerusalem. The last place. I can envision it happening somewhere in the far reaches of the Roman Empire. But in Jerusalem where there's thousands of people and it could have easily been right away disproven. The early Christian preaching, which right away was that he died and rose again. That's, that's what you find in the historical sources. That's the major that's the preaching of Christianity early on. That it's not all this sophisticated theology. It's simply that Jesus died and rose. That he's the, the fulfillment of all the old messianic prophecies. That, it was nece- that the prophets uh, taught that it was necessary that the Christ was to die and rise for sins. Um, that's, a, that's, that's the core of Christianity. And there were quite thousands of people who converted it could have been easily, and the Romans and the Jews despised that sort of that that teaching. They could have easily, if the Jews didn't like it because this is more sort of purity issues, they could have easily employed a Roman to go expose that that body, that dead body. Easily falsify the religion. Um, in First Corinthians fifteen, I mentioned earlier where Paul says that if if Christ did not rise, and I'll add in bodily from the dead. Our preaching is in vain, and Christians are the most pitiable of all people. He writes this in the mid-50s, but in the beginning of that little, what some have said is the, one of the earliest creedal statements of Christianity, he says, this has been handed down from me, or handed down to me. 
from the, the, the earliest Christians in Jerusalem when he went there right after he got a, if, if you know a bit of the life of, of Paul, right after his conversion experience, he goes out into the desert, perhaps Arabia, for a little while. Comes back maybe 35, as early as 35 AD um, and makes, you know, sort of tests what he is, is taught with what, what the church is, is, is uh, claiming. And um, that, that statement that Jesus died according to scriptures for the forgiveness of sins that he rose from the dead um, was handed down to him already in 35 AD. That's the, that's the earliest testimony of Christians. To, get, to move into more back into an Islamic context, the, claim of, the classic claim of Islam um, was put forward by Ibn Taymiyyah who said that, the, that this, actually this claim is an invention of Christianity. He says the false uh, religion of the Christians is something that was invented or created after the time of Jesus, the, you know, the prophet of Islam. So, um, but that's, that's a big question you're asking. I, all I can do is suggest that you, if you want to be convinced, I can't persuade you in a, on a subjective level, but I can suggest that just go and read the eyewitnesses. They're the ones who are there. I'm just some goofy academic uh, pretending to be scientific. <laughs> okay. Um, so from what you said earlier about the Muslim, um, the Quran stating that it states that Jesus um, died and resurrected and that, of course, the Bible states that. So you did mention that later on, in the Quran that they don't believe that. So either they do believe that Jesus died in resurrection or yeah. they don't. They, uh, most, the majority, I, you, I think agree, correct me if I'm wrong. The majority of the Muslim world says that Jesus was not crucified. Somebody who looked like him who, or who was made to look like him, perhaps Judas, perhaps Simon the Cyrene, some have suggested was actually trans. Their face at least was Maybe they looked like Jesus originally, or their face was kind of altered so that they looked like Jesus. So when he was arrested, or when that when the you know the the Jews came, or the Romans came a knocking, they with the Jews they they saw that person and arrested him instead of Jesus. Jesus, in fact, what Islam claims is Jesus once somebody volunteered to die in his place was immediately taken up into heaven, and he's he's there, perhaps in the second or third realm awaiting uh, the day of judgment. Is it the second or third? Is it is there any sort of consensus on that? Okay. Yeah, okay. So he's waiting his return. He's still alive. That's, that's, I mean, that's, that is the, the classic claim of Islam. That's, he's, he's still alive. Um, historically, there have been some Christian theologians who have said, um, so let's get this right. Muhammad is dead. Jesus is still alive, yet Muhammad's the seal. He's, the, he's not better in that his his teachings are better. They're, the way Muslims would see it, that Jesus' teachings and his, Muhammad's teachings were the same. Um, but that, that's the position, is that he did not die. He was taken up, instead taken up into heaven. Um, it's, it's peculiar for us. It, for, for, from a Christian perspective, we think that just doesn't square, you know, it doesn't make sense and doesn't square, I would say square with history. But uh, yeah. Yes, ma'am. 
Um, on the question of the resurrection, uh, earlier you, Ahmed actually um, discussed the distinction between what happened and what Jesus claimed happened. But whether you're Muslim or you're Christian, you actually have to respect his words because he's either the prophet or God. So whether he it did happen or whether he claims it happens, it did happen. Um, I guess that basically goes into the validity of um, the Gospels. And... Um, yeah. That's actually that's the that's really I you're, that's very perceptive. That's the real issue: is can the Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John be trusted um, as historical sources? And there, of course, is a lot of debate. It's not a, a lot of debate about that. But I would say, if you look into it and you don't just read one side of the story, they they come out as I mean, they're eyewitnesses and companions of eyewitnesses. They're good historical sources. I'm comfortable with with using them as historical sources, um, as, a, as a historian. There are those, um, there's, there's various claims of corruption. Some, historically, Muslims have, have claimed that the, the interpretation of the text has been altered by Christians. They've, they've imposed a sort of, maybe Paul's Trinitarian theology on the text. Uh, the most, uh, the more widespread claim these days is that the actual text um, has been corrupted to the extent that you can't trust it. That all sorts of theological innovations have been added, and that's that's a certainly. I mean, one can make that claim, but um, it's hard to answer the the question that 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 begs. You know, okay, where's your evidence that the that there, that there have been theological or historical things added to it? I, that just doesn't square with what we find in the manuscript tradition. On the claim of innovation, that. I guess you're saying that the oldest copies are second century, and so would that innovation... The oldest have... extensive copies, yeah. But so. we have fragments that some would say date to first century, if not uh, early in the... I mean, that's, there's one scholar out there who claims we have a fragment from a small fragment, and it's very controversial, but we have a small fragment from Mark that dates to 50 A.D., uh, that's not a common consensus, but uh, so as you said earlier, the innovation would have happened after Paul's letters. Um, the the usual claim that I encounter in in books and with uh, Muslim apologists is that, and we would certainly say that, or most of us would say, Christians would say, Paul wrote his his works are the earliest that we've got, and so the the theory is then that the gospel writers bought into Paul's theology and wrote biographies of Jesus that was commensurate with Paul's theology. They're not necessarily a reflection of what Jesus taught and did. And so, um, but, that, but there's d- a debate, though, between the dating of the Gospels oh, yeah. oh, either yeah. before or after Paul. Um, I mean, Matthew, yeah. what, you know, what tradition is Paul talking of? Speaking yeah, of? right, right. There certainly was, a, handed down to um, me. certainly was a, an oral tradition that right away, um, that's that's almost obvious, um, uh, and I think Paul falls right in line with that oral tradition that precedes his 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 writings. And so I th- his I would not make like some Christians uh, scholars out there they make a distinction between John's theology and Paul's theology and Mark's. And I I would say that they're that while they have different um, styles of writing, the theology is the same. Yes, yeah, and if um, if there is something preceding. Paul is using the words of institution in 1 Corinthians. Yes. And certainly that has a divine yeah. 
Yeah. And, and just because uh, the Gospels may have been written after Paul's, you know, the first, first Corinthians, one of the earliest, if not the earliest New Testament text, just becomes, because they come after doesn't mean they're influenced by Paul's theology, if that makes sense. You know, that, that's, the, that's actually a logical fallacy, post hoc ergo propter hoc. Um, it's a, just a simple logical fallacy and historical fallacy. Excuse me? Q? Are you talking about Q? Q, I'm sorry, Q. Yeah, um, yeah, there's a lot of talk about Q. It's uh, short for German quella, which means source. Some speculate that there's a common source that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and you know, John maybe drew from, whether it was a written source. or And everybody acts as if it actually existed as a written document. But uh, if you ask everybody, you know, where, where, where is it? There isn't any... It's not around. There are some who are trying to reconstruct Q, and you, you ask, well, on the basis of what <laughs> textual evidence? There is none. So it's just a convenient, I don't know when it developed. Uh, he would know more than me, but uh, it's a, when, when scholars, excuse me? Yeah, yeah, when Scott, but do you know when it developed? You know, what years? You know, t- probably 19th century. Uh, but when they looked at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they noticed there are a lot of, very close parallels, and they say, oh, they must have written, either they copied Mark or borrowed a lot from Mark, Matthew, and, and Luke, or Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all used a, a, a common source, Q. But it, it's, a, it's a, as Pastor said, it's, a, um, it's just a hypothesis. It's not a historical fact at all. So it could have been, who knows. Yeah. All right, well, we thank you for your attention, and... Um Please join me in one more time giving an applause for Dr. Francisco. All right, so there you have it. What'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. I thought that was an excellent lecture. Very informative, and I love how he approaches uh, defending the, the claims of Christianity by looking at it from, you know, basically the science of historiography. So what did you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. That's right. He died and he was raised again. Contrary to the claims of, yeah, you got it. Amen. Amen.